in the air. Brito back at the wall. Adios, Pelota! That's the type of manager that I'd like to be, which is the same every day. They know what they're going to get. They're going to get energy. They're going to get accountability. They're going to get structure, and they're going to get support. And I'm going to bring those things to the dugout in the clubhouse regularly. It takes hard work, uh, and it takes humility, taking one step forward at a time, making one good baseball move after another. And I really feel like that's how we're going to get where we hope and intend to go. You're listening to Bags and Brisby on Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 93 of the Bags and Brisby podcast. I am Grant Brisby. I'm here with Andy Baggerly. Andy, 93. I guess that means that we're going to do really well this episode, but not well enough. We're going we're gonna <laughs> to win 103 games, so to speak, but it's just not going to be good enough for the listener. I was thinking, I, I'm pretty sure 1993 is the year I graduated high school. So that's kind of dates me a little bit. But when I think 93, I think it, the cover of my high school yearbook. Yeah, no, I'm 94. I'm 94. So we can uh, compare yearbook photos and uh, I have long hair in a Primus shirt and my senior picture. So <laughs> that is, that is uh, absolutely 100% true. But we are not here to talk about high school yearbook photos. We're here to talk about Giants baseball and the road trip of doom is over and it went about as poorly as expected. Every (laughs) series was a series loss. Uh, At the same time, every series was almost a series win or I guess in Coors Field, a series split. Uh, so it's, it's bittersweet, but I guess that's the difference between a bad team and a mediocre team is the mediocre team finds a way to win a couple of these games. The Giants just might be bad. Yeah. Yeah. The the road trip went down about as nice as a, as a nice smooth can of pork soda, you could say. (laughs) Good call back. Good call back. It's the only Primus album I know actually. So I I, I can't, I can't go further down this hole with you, unfortunately, but, uh, Yeah. Um, no, you know, it's. I was looking at it and I was thinking the same thing. We're, we're talking to Gabe Kapler on his post game Zoom, and we're talking about some of the positives. And and you know, they had some near misses on this trip, and they were they were competitive. They they were there were a couple games that were, looked really ugly, uh, but um, you know, they, they played better defensively. I think as a whole in uh, in Houston. But then you know, obviously the, the bats weren't quite as potent. They've had some injuries um, with Donovan Solano being out. Austin Slater had to be scratched from the last day. And you think, well, you know, I mean, they, they were kind of competitive. They, the, all those series could have gone one way or the other. But then you look at it at the end of the day, they're 8-12. and 12. They're in last place. Their run differential is minus 29. Only the Pirates are worse in the National League. And this is kind of how a team becomes a last place team is you just slowly, the air leaks out of the balloon and you lose two out of three and you lose two out of three and you get swept and then you lose two out of three. And, you know, you think, well, they're, they're not that far away. But, um, you know, that's why every team pretty much wins 60 games in a 162-game season. Um, you know, because the, the, a lot of times the games can be a little bit closer than they appear. And this is, this is just not a very good baseball team. It's not a very deep baseball team. It's not a very talented baseball team. They're in transition. It's all the things that we already knew. But, you know, you come into this season with a little bit of a rational hope and because and, that's all we got right now. And, and you think, well, maybe some strange stuff can happen. And, and maybe it still can because they're 8-12. and 12. They're only really a, a game or two out of a wild card playoff spot at this point, which is crazy. 
Um, so, you know, the schedule will get a little bit easier, but not immediately. Now they've got the A's coming in this weekend. Yeah. According to baseball reference, they are a 31.4% chance to make the postseason and a 1% chance to win the World Series. Uh, that's not based on the strength of the team. If you go to fan graphs, it's going to be different because they're actually plugging in the players and their expected performance. But it still gives you an idea that even with a, a third of the season being gone, there's still a chance with all the extra postseason teams. And then once you're in the postseason, wackiness can happen. And I mean, who knows? We're a third of the way through the season and the Baltimore Orioles are raking and they're over 500. They, they've missed a few games because of, of Corona issues. But, you know, weirdness can happen in the second third of a season and the, the final third of a season. So... I don't know. I'm not ready to write the season off. So there are a lot of problems that maybe I was expecting. I was I was sort of expecting the bullpen to be on the iffier side, the rotation. Maybe it's not going to be a top-tier rotation, might not even be a middle-tier rotation, even if it's got some, some solid pitchers. But there's still a lower floor because they're hitting. They're hitting at least a little bit. You've got some players who are doing fine, and it feels like they can come back from a five-run deficit, and they have. But that can go away. That can go away fairly quickly, I think. Yeah, and and, you know, you look at their schedule coming up and after the A's, I think are four pretty critical games uh, for both teams because the Angels are kind of in the same boat. I mean, they started off seven and 12 and, you know, they're a team that looks like, you know, OK, they're already six games behind the A's for the division lead. There's nobody else in the division that's 500 right now, but we know the Astros are talented. But they're another team that's like, OK, we got off to a terrible start. We may be in transition, but we have some pretty good players. They also have this Mike Trout guy, but they're at a time when they have to start winning some games if they want to try to get in the playoffs this year. And there's going to be a home and home coming up with the Giants. And I kind of feel like if one team were to drop three out of four, of those games against each other, kind of a, a, a death knell, I guess. But yeah, the, the Diamondbacks games are going to be big because obviously the, the Giants cannot allow the Diamondbacks to finish ahead of them in the standings because the Padres, Rockies, and Dodgers already are, and they still haven't played them yet. And there's a, a 10 games left against the Diamondbacks out of you know 40 or so. So the schedule is going to get a little bit easier. But then if the Diamondbacks heat up, then maybe they're not the team you want to be playing at that time. So all this stuff that really evens out over a long season, it's just a little bit funkier over 60 games. And so, no, you can't really count anybody out at this point, except maybe the Pirates. Let's count the Pirates out. <laughs> You're looking at the schedule. I'm going to make some assumptions just personally. Assumption number one, I don't think the Diamondbacks are this bad. I know that they've had some real struggles with starting pitching and Baumgartner's velocity is down. I still think they're not this bad. Uh, assumption number two, the Rockies, are they might be fine. They might have figured something out when it comes to the pitching. They they might have uh, righted the ship after a, a really weird, disappointing 2019. The Rockies might be fine. And if you start doing that, and then I'll assume that the Padres are good now, that they've arrived or, or something close to it. They're at least going to be... 500 or better their true talent level and if you start doing that and you go through the rest of the schedule that's like all the giants see it's it's the angels it's the diamondbacks the dodgers the rockies over and over again except for the mariners and like are you really going to pin your hopes on four games against the mariners probably not so the giants are not going to have an easy path to the postseason they'll have to start playing like a team that deserves to be there which i 
guess is the point. And and I guess that, that gives me some faith that even in a weird 60-game season that there might be some sort of meritocracy going on. Yeah, what's really kind of interesting, though, is when you look at the separation in the NL West, and you've got the Rockies at 12-6, and six, the Dodgers at 12-7, and seven, and the Giants are already five games and four and a half games behind those two teams. And, you know, you can make up that ground. It's not like there's five games left in the season, especially when you've got, you know, head-to-heads left. But I think it's probably going to be a tall order for the Giants to f- try to finish in the top two in the NL West, because we know the Padres are in front of them, and they're probably going to play well also. So the top two teams are going to make the playoffs in each division. That leaves really those two wildcard spots in the National League for the third place finishers in the East, Central, and West, or the third and fourth place finishers in one of those divisions. And none of those teams are playing the same schedule at all. None of them are playing the same opponents at all. There are no common opponents. So how does it shake out when you have a team like the Pirates go 3-13? and That's really problematic for teams who are like the Giants who are trying to sneak in as a wild card out of the West as the third team or the fourth team, maybe even if you've got an imbalance of power in those other divisions. So there's just a lot of that that's going to play out that's going to be really unpredictable and will have very little to do with how the Giants perform, to be honest. So they just have to try to win as many baseball games as they can. Just make it simple, I guess. Um, but even that may not be enough. And in the weirdness that is 2020, uh, even if the Giants start chasing for one of those extra wildcard spots, they might be chasing the Cardinals. And do you remember the Cardinals' record right now? I don't remember the Cardinals, Grant. <laughs> the Cardinals are 2-3. <laughs> and three. The Cardinals basically, uh, like, they started on Saturday, and then, you know, if the Giants had started in, in the... Uh, uh, Kevin Gossman game and then their season ended right now. That's what the Cardinals season has been like. So they have to make up a billion games and how are they going to do it? Do they have double, triple headers? Are, are they going to do it after the season? Are they just going to write it off? Are the Cardinals going to have a hot week and then suddenly be in that pole position for a wild card spot? And it's so bizarre. This whole season is bizarre. It's also bizarre to talk about the, the, the postseason after a road trip like that. But the fact that we can, maybe maybe it wasn't so bad. Maybe, the, maybe we should still be talking about a postseason. Yeah, I'm looking at like runs scored and runs against, and I noticed that the Giants have given up 114 runs, which is the most among National League teams. And then I'm like, then I'm like, wait, that's a dumb thing to look at. You've got the Cardinals have given up 19 runs because they've played five <laughs> games. Um, and 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 I think it was Rob Manfred who was like. Uh, saying in a very sort of obtuse way, oh, well, you know, there's this thing called winning percentage that we can use. Okay, great. The Cardinals have a 400 winning percentage. So if they'd only won one more game, it'd be a 600 winning percentage and they'd be like the first wildcard team. That's so, you know, that makes no sense. I, I don't know how they're going to work this out with the Cardinals. I, I really don't. Uh, the Marlins are obviously playing again. Uh, they've got 12 games under their belt as opposed to a team like the Giants that has 20 games under their belt. But for some teams to be 20 games into their schedule, a third of the way done, and for the Cardinals to have played five games and have a ton of seven-inning doubleheaders scheduled that maybe those are going to get canceled too, I, I don't know. It's almost like maybe it's just one of those things where it's whatever teams are left standing uh, are the ones that you can consider for, for the postseason. And then, you know, as we've learned through some of the chatter this past week, it, it sounds as if, you know, that we may have a postseason bubble situation uh, that just sort of ensures that nothing like this Cardinals situation happens in the middle of the postseason. Because if, if that were to happen, what, you're just going to have, you know, forfeits and fiats and and, um, and that's going to determine who, who moves on. I mean, we, we don't want that. That's going to be a mess. Um, so... 
yeah, there's there's just a lot to figure out. Um, and, and yet at the same time, you think, is it all worth it? And and you have a game like Wednesday's game, or I'm sorry, Tuesday's game in Houston, which was wildly entertaining. And the Giants played a really nice game and had a great comeback. And there were a lot of people who had a good hand in it. Gabe Kapler showed some faith in Hunter Pence and Tyler Rogers, which was very meaningful to both those guys. And I think we saw the best of Gabe Kapler in, in that game and that really good signature 10-inning win. Uh, we saw the Giants win a game with the automatic runner at second base, uh, where it didn't work out so well for them against the Padres before. Um, so, you know, yeah, it's, it's, I think if we can just get through this season and, and teams have individual moments that, that are, give fans some, some entertainment value, that, that's really the whole point. Let's pause to tell you about Manscaped. Fellas, are you prepared to unveil your summer bod? The beaches are opening, the sun is shining, and the bushes must be tamed. Manscaped is here to ensure your formulations to round out your manscaping routine. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code THEATHLETIC20 at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code THEATHLETIC20. And the Shed Travel Bag, $39 value. And the patented high-performance anti-chafing Manscaped boxer briefs. So go to manscaped.com today and use code THEATHLETIC20. It's really going to be impossible to take a lot away, like a lot of meaning away from this season as, as far as here's what we learned, you know, here's what I did on my summer vacation sort of thing. Like we're, what, what can you, what have we learned in the first third of the season? Have we learned that Brandon Belt and Brandon Crawford are just toast completely done I don't know that that's not fair over you know 12 games for Brandon Bell 18 for Brandon Crawford there's slumps there's slumps still exist there's still things you know is Hunter Pence completely cooked maybe he's 37 but he's had 40 plate appearances maybe not maybe an extra hot 10 plate appearances would get his numbers right back where they need to be so it's it's like don't focus on that and just sort of enjoy whatever you can those wins the come from behind wins and and you know is Logan Webb making progress and you're looking at this outing and that outing and and uh, Kevin Gaussman is is he doing what he's supposed to be doing Trevor got like I don't know like there's just pick out these nuggets and try not to overthink it that's what I'm trying to do at least yeah and you know we've got the A's and Giants and they're gonna play each other and you have an opportunity to take out one of the many split Ace Giants caps that you have in your closet and wear it all weekend long and wear it with pride. I do have a split cap. I do. No, you do. I do. There's a picture somewhere on the internet uh, buried in the bowels of the SB Nation uh, picture archives of me in it, uh, making a goofy face just to, to annoy people on the internet. But yeah, I have one. I have one and it's weird and it, it fits weird and I'm scared to wear it in public. Uh, but I do have one. It does exist. What do you think Giants fans hate more, the split cap or the wave? I'm going to go with wave. See, A's fans probably hate the split cap more. Uh, Giants okay. fans, you know, it, it's sort of like, okay, yeah, that's kind of weird and, and maybe a little gross. Haha, ha, you got me. Where A's fans, like, you can see the flames behind the pupils when, when they, see, they see that cap. Some of them, I mean, I think the A's-Giants rivalry is overblown, even from the A's fans' perspective, because uh, you still have some A's fans who are like, yeah, I don't care if the Giants are, you know, I've, I've met them, I've talked to them, they exist, they're real people. But the A's fans who hate the Giants, 
they also exist and they are they are a very very vocal plurality maybe not a minority maybe not a majority but i'll go with plurality I think some of them follow me on Twitter, and I, yes. I, I believe I've heard from them a time or two, I usually learned, when I make fun of the Coliseum's plumbing. Yeah, I learned this the hard way when I would write anything about the Giants in San Jose from McCovey Chronicles. I think, you know, like 2010, I was just oblivious and going, Derp, here's, here's something about the Giants in San Jose. And then, like, it's just like a, a, a whistle that goes out uh, on the internet, and A's fans go, oh, we, we're talking about territorial rights? Oh, <laughs> boy and then they would you know tell me the whole sorted back history I, uh, they do not like that but i i think the giants i don't know they're more entertaining and, and I, it keeps going back to the offense and in that feeling of when they're down by four runs you still sort of think that they might have a chance which is not something you've experienced since the the first half of, of 2016 and it's enjoyable it, it makes it so that when they get down you're not just going oh, okay here comes the slog just you know just turn the game off now you're starting to think well if they get a, a bloop here and a blast there they're, they're right back in it and they've done it a couple of times to make you think that uh i just i'm just happy for that offense because without what Donovan Solano's doing without what Austin Slater's done, without some well-timed hits, it would be a pretty pretty unwatchable team. Yeah, I, you know, I, I really have just been impressed by some of the at-bats. And I think one of the reasons they've been able to get back in games is they've been able to draw walks. Uh, there were two walks that, that they drew in front of Hunter Pence's three-run homer the other day. Um, I, I see a, a good approach with two strikes, and there are some out, there are some exceptions. Mauricio Dubon has really looked bad. <laughs> He's really had some rough at bats, and, and granted, Zach Grinky will carve anybody up, but uh, you know Zach Grinky's basically yelling the signs and telling you, "Okay, this is what I'm throwing you now," and and, and Mauricio is still still not really having a chance up there. But yeah, his his exit velocities have not been good. His his swings have been very defensive, um, but. A lot of other guys, man. Yastrzemski, uh, Slater. You, you got to hope his elbow is not a major issue. Um, Solano, um, even Pence. You know, you don't see as much chasing. You see, you see them getting more aggressive in the zone. And you know, this shocked me. After Flores and Pence homered in Tuesday's win, that was home runs number twelve and thirteen on two strike counts, which is the most in the National League, tied with the Angels for the most in the major leagues. And you don't want to be in two strike counts, but um, you know, it's it sort of signals to me kind of what I'm seeing in the macro, which is guys are, are kind of being aggressive within their zone and there's better count awareness and better zone awareness. And, and all of that is leading to better strikeout to walk ratios, uh, which is leading to, you know, a, an offense that is basically, you know, a little bit tougher to, to handle for an opposing uh, starting pitcher. And, um, and I, yeah, I, I think that the, the hitting group, is probably making the the biggest strides right now in terms of you know how this coaching staff is performing. And when I'm talking about sample size and it's only 20 games in, and what can we have learned? I do think we've learned something with Mike Yastrzemski insofar that walks tend to stabilize. We've talked about this. They tend to stabilize quicker than almost any other stat. Walks and strikeouts. It's hard to fake a high walk rate in even 100 plate appearances. And right now, Mike Yastrzemski is leading the National League in walks. He has 17 walks. He had 32 walks in 411 plate appearances last year. He's getting close to that with just 87 plate appearances this year. 
I don't think that that's something that can happen with just a roll of the dice and, you know, this is what happened in these random 87 plate appearances. I do think that there is an underlying skill under that hood. And to me, that speaks to the giant somehow. Like, I get that it's it's Yastrzemski who's up there. It's Yastrzemski who's taking the pitch. I want to believe that there's some organizational effort to explain how to take pitches, to how to recognize, uh, how to be aggressive while also being patient, and that it's being communicated in a way that's at least reached this one player and can reach other players in the future. If there's anything to be optimistic about in the 2020 season, it's what Mike Estremski is doing with his bat control and plate discipline. Oh, I, I totally am seeing the same things you're seeing. I think we're seeing a guy who... Uh, is at least an all-star level player right now and and, and maybe could even be a down ballot MVP candidate um, you know now he's not 24 um, so you know you'd be a little more excited if, if he's just starting to break through in his career but I, I just see a guy who's a good athlete who's got just great awareness and you know Hunter Pence just extolled his leadership value and and what he and Austin Slater are doing behind the scenes um, and, and and the ways that they are kind of setting an example. I think that that this coaching change to go and this is not not to malign Bruce Bochy at all, but um, to go to this really process driven, growth driven coaching staff. I think that it has been a real positive change for a couple of people, and I, I would put Slater and Yastrzemski at the top of that list. I mean, these are guys who, you know, not, not to be college biased, but they went to Stanford and, and Vanderbilt. I mean, they're they're obviously intelligent guys, and I think they thirst for a lot of knowledge, and they want to learn more, and they want to apply more skills, and they want to sharpen, you know, the knife, so to speak. And and I think that they're they've got the resources now to do that. And, uh, and gosh, Austin Slater right now looks like a guy who could be a 30-30 player. I mean, Austin Slater we're talking about. It's, it's uh, again, it's 20 games, but you can see the approach, and the approach is sound. And that is something, um, if you go into a slump, maybe you get out of your approach, but if you can maintain it, you know, it, it should be something that should lead to more stable results. And, uh, and yeah, I, I think that that's... That's a big positive for the Giants going forward. Let's pause for a quick word from Indochino. Stanford and Vanderbilt. I mean, they're not San Jose State. They are good schools. They are good schools. They are not San Jose State. Uh, I, I, I agree with this, and it, it makes me... It, you know, it's it's how you get slump proof in a in a way where if you have the the on base percentage, if you have the plate discipline, and you're not going to just chase wildly out of the zone, it it, it helps. Just if you have a few players in the lineup who do that, it really helps the offense sort of impervious to, to slumps or or. or just lineup wide slumps. And it's something I did not have on my Mike Yastrzemski bingo card uh, before the season because it was the big question. Hey, is this guy for real? It's a reasonable question. He was 28 last year. Uh, he hit 21 home runs and kind of out of nowhere, he wasn't even on the roster uh, at the beginning of the year. So it's reasonable. Hey, is this guy for real? And I think in a best case scenario before the season, you had him hitting for power. You had his batting average sort of maybe dipping from 272. Maybe he didn't have the contact skills, so maybe he's going to hit 250, 260 with power and still be a, a solid player, a productive player. 
I didn't have hitting for average and an on-base percentage in in the high 400s. Like, that was not there. And the idea that this has happened somehow, whether it's him cracking open Moneyball on his own or an organizational effort, which is much, much more likely, uh, that's just not something I saw. And the fact that it's happening, you can... Take the bullpen. You know, you can just forget about it. I, I don't care about that. They'll find relief arms. You show me this in this one instance in 87 plate appearances. This is way more exciting than the bullpen is dejected. Yeah, because you know that Joey Bart is getting this instruction. You know, Hunter Bishop and Marco Luciano yes. are getting this instruction. And, and these are being these are concepts that are really being stressed to them. And, you know, I, I mean, covering some some bad, bad offensive teams over you know my baseball writing career I, I think back to okay well I'll, I'll I'll be kind here I'll, I'll mention a Dodgers team that I covered I think it was in 2000 uh, 2003 and their pitching was amazing that year they had Kevin Brown they had Hideo Nomo and uh, who came back and was really good again uh, they had Odalis Perez who was really good their bullpen was just lights out Gagne didn't blow a save every year they didn't make the playoffs uh, they missed the playoffs by a game or two and uh, it's because their offense was abysmal. And it's not like they had bad players. They had Brian Jordan, they had Sean Green, they had Paul LaDuca, but there was just a collective lack of belief in that group because everyone got off to a bad start and everyone took it upon themselves to try to be the guy to get it done. And you looked in the on-deck circle and you didn't have faith that that person was going to be able to get a hit with runners on base. So you, you thought, I got to take it into my own hands. And what happens? You end up in bad count leverage. You end up making bad swing decisions. You end up expanding the zone. You end up swinging at a pitcher's strike and, and hitting a, a double play. Um, you know, all those things, that's how a bad offense or a lack of an offense with a lack of talent um, can get worse. And, and, and it's almost like they double down on, on the fact that they don't have talent. And, and, and what you see, I think, is just a very much more rational approach, which is, hey, let's control what we can control when we're in that batter's box. And it's very simple. If it's a, a pitcher strike early in the count, we're going to take it if it's not a pitch that we can drive because we don't want to play into their hands. If it's you know, a, an O2 slider out of the batter's box, we're, we're going to see that and recognize it. And we're working on our cognitive pitch recognition skills so we can pick that up early and we're going to take a pass at it and and, and, and not, not swing at it and, and wait till we get into situations where we can leverage a pitch and really do impact on it. And I think that's why you're seeing the two strike homers because you're not seeing those sort of defensive you know, sort of a swat at the ball type of swings where you're going to put a ball into play at, you know, 70 miles per hour and it's going to be an easy out. Um, and there are some guys I think who are struggling with that still. Brandon Crawford, I think, is still takes some defensive two-strike swings. Uh, Dubon, we've talked about. But, man, some of the other guys, it's uh, it's it's really been refreshing to watch because I, I have not seen seen this in a long time, probably since 2012 in a Giants offense that just – seems to have confidence where they didn't have confidence before. The last six games, you've seen the template with the Dodgers and the Astros where none of them are comfortable at bats for a pitcher. Where you, you've you got a guy up there and you have two strikes and you're not thinking, aha, now to put him away and dust off your hands. It's, it's not like that. You're still terrified. You have a guy like... Uh, Kyle Tucker, you know, this is not the Astro that you're thinking about. He, he's a toolsy guy. He's been around for a couple of years, but, you know, he's not exactly established. He, he's hitting 209 right now. But at the same time, 
you just watch him swing and you watch this whip-like swing straight through the zone and he scares you and even when the guys aren't hitting you just look at every Astros pitch or hitter every Dodgers hitter and you're thinking all they're trying to do is swing like like they're trying to to win a Cupid doll and they're waiting for that pitch in the zone so you can't throw it in the zone but you can't throw it out of the zone either you gotta you gotta put it right right in the edge right in the corner right you know and it's it's nerve-wracking and I think that's what the Giants are trying to build toward they're not trying to to get you know a Jeremy Giambri Jeremy Giambi 130 watt kind of player they're just trying to do damage like the Dodgers and Astros yeah when I watch Kyle Tucker I think his name should be like Huck Fleener or Buck Weaver or <laughs> Trip Cromer or something um I, I think Kruk or Kipe one of them said he looks like Von Hayes that's a pretty good pretty good facial comp. <laughs> that is good. Uh, I thought that was good. But uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's, uh, I always thought of Bumgarner with two strikes. He looked like he was trying to ring the strength bell, you know, so Cupid doll is maybe you win the Cupid doll when you ring the strength bell. But, um, you know, it's, uh, it is pretty amazing though. You watch Trevor Cahill, uh, who, as you very, very smartly pointed out, became the first giant in franchise history to not give up a hit in his starting pitching debut for the franchise, uh, which I, I did mention that to him on the postgame Zoom call. I said, would, would it surprise you to learn? And and he said, well, I, I'm probably also the first pitcher to issue four walks and face like seven batters, so thank you for that. But uh, but yeah, he, he, you know, he came off the injured list and he wasn't built up and they were hoping he could get through maybe three innings on 40 pitches. And as it stood, he didn't get out of the second and he walked four and he didn't give up a hit. And he threw... He he wasn't wild. I mean, he threw a lot of pitches that were just off, and the Astros spit on him. And he he's like, cats off to them. They were better than me. They had a great approach. You have a pitcher saying an offense was better than me, and they didn't get a hit off him. But it just shows what approach can do. It shows what, you know, um, the last two pitches he threw, he knew he was facing his last batter, and he just humped up and threw, you know, 91 at the letters as hard as he could, and they were above the zone, and they they didn't register swings. Um, so, you know, that tells you just how, how dangerous a team can be without even swinging the bat. I always just in my head go, what if Trevor Cahill were doing this in even 2015? Like, what, what if he were pitching this game just 10 years ago, five years ago? What would the results be? Maybe the same. I don't know. I don't have a time machine. But it just seems like as right now you, you have a million pitchers who seem to throw in the upper 90s. So you know, you can see with your eyes that that's changed. Uh, the talent level has improved, at least when it comes to velocity. I think the same thing. It's it's harder. It's less, it's not quite as tangible. But I think the same thing is true for hitters, where they're just able to recognize pitches, the, the, the difference between a fastball and a slider, and still have the ability to catch up to 97. I think that's way different now than it was five years ago. It's the trends. I mean, we know what the trends have been. I mean, the, there have been other trends that are, I think, are not so great in terms of just entertainment value. I mean, the strikeouts are through the roof. Um, you know, we're not seeing guys running into the outfield corners and making great throws, and we're not seeing guys, you know, stealing bases. I mean, we are, just not to the same volume that we saw them before. Um, but, uh yeah, you know, it's 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 really interesting to see how trends develop in this game. Like things like, uh, you know, you're watching Chadwick Tromp catch and you're thinking, this is a mess back there. And you're listening to Mike Kruko, who's just dogging him, saying they got to change this. They they got to change this setup. He, he can't block pitches this way with, with runners on base. And then you find out, 
No, no, that's, that's what they're teaching him to do. He wasn't doing that before. This is what they taught him to splay one leg out like Tony Pena because they want to steal low strikes. And you think, well, you know, what's what's the benefit of, of stealing, you know, 100 extra strikes over a two-week period? How much count leverage does that give you? You know, what, what are the advantages there versus an extra wild pitch or two? Um, but then pitcher discomfort is part of that, too. So, you know, it's it's just kind of fascinating to see what teams are doing and what becomes standard operating procedure almost overnight. And it looks funny as it's happening. And, and maybe some of this is experimental. Maybe a lot of what teams are doing with this kind of half-baked season is just, hey, let's just you know throw out all this stuff that we've been talking about on the dry erase board and see what it looks like in practice. And maybe it doesn't work. But you know, let's at least you know get something out of being here and, and, and doing this this season. And uh, and I wonder just how many other things that they're doing that they haven't talked about or we haven't noticed that are that are small. Um, I'll bet you there's a lot of them. I bet you there are. I would love to be a fly on the wall. All right. This has been episode 93. Before I go, I just want to point out that during my research for that Trevor Cahill no-hit debut, I found Mike Kruko, his third outing as a giant. He pitched six innings, six no-hit innings, and then he was replaced uh, with Jim Barr. Uh, I have to figure out why. That this is a new mystery. <laughs> this is a new mystery Ooh, of mine. We can find out. I can find out. Yes. I will find out. Six no-hit innings, and then after getting Dave Concepcion to ground into a double play to end the six, he, he's gone. What What happened? What happened? I got to figure this out. All right. This has been episode 93 of the Bags and Brisby podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks to Tanika Smothers for producing us. We will be back on Monday and we'll have we'll have games to talk about. We will have home games to talk about. Home games that are not at Coors, Dodger Stadium, or Enron Juice Field, whatever. And they'll probably be more exciting to talk about. But thanks for listening and we will see you then. <laughs>